Whether it's a pain reliever for a headache or a life-saving operation, everyone is touched by the healthcare industry. But in today's digital world, the way that people interact with healthcare is very different than in the past. Our guest today says that there are fundamental problems in the way healthcare companies and their advertising agencies market health and wellness brands across digital media. You're listening to Everyday Family Medicine, and I'm Dr. Jennifer Cottle. Joining me today is Vince Perry, President and Chief Branding Officer at Perry Branding Group. He is the author of the book entitled Identity Crisis, Healthcare Branding's Hidden Problems and Proven Strategies to Solve Them. Mr. Perry, welcome to ReachMD. Thanks for having me, Dr. Cottle. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Before we launch into the first question, I, I have the benefit of knowing you personally, so I know some of your background. But would you mind just telling the audience just a little bit about some of the healthcare brands that you've worked on throughout the years so they can get a, a scope of your experience? Sure, absolutely. I've been in the health and wellness marketing and branding industry for over 30 years. And I've launched the identities for some of the most iconic brands that have been out there at the agencies in which I worked. So I'm responsible for Lipitor. I've worked on Prozac, Botox, Neupogen, Rituxan, and even Propecia for alopecia. <laughs> so I've sort of ran the gambit between serious cancer therapies and stuff to regrow hair. <laughs> I'm glad that you mentioned that because I think it's actually very fascinating, the work that you've done as a physician. And it's one of the reasons why I wanted to interview you for this program, as I think other healthcare providers and physicians are going to be very interested in, in sort of the nuts and bolts of how this all works. You know, we see the end product, but we never see sort of what goes into branding. So why don't we get started? You've written your book, Identity Crisis, Healthcare Branding's Hidden problems and proven strategies to help them. Why do you actually feel that the healthcare branding world is in an identity crisis? Two reasons, actually. The title of the book refers to one of my theses, which is that when people get sick, they cease to become themselves. Their identity is threatened by illness, that illness robs people of key aspects of their identity. And of course, the more chronic the illness and serious the illness, the more the theft of identity occurs. But to answer your question more specifically, I feel that the selling of health and wellness brands suffers a brand identity crisis because advertising agencies and the manufacturers themselves often use consumer goods branding practices to sell the brands. And that's really not aligning correctly with what people are looking for when they buy healthcare brands, and certainly not what doctors are looking for when they prescribe healthcare brands. Consumer goods branding is a celebration of the buying process. Oh, look, I got a new iPhone, or I got a new BMW, or a new Dior bag. And by the way, I don't endorse any of those brands. I'm just bringing them up as examples. But it's not a celebration of self when you're buying a healthcare brand. It's a restoration of self. It's a protection of self. And so that's why you tend to see a lot of those corny commercials on TV and in print advertising sometimes with the mascots that they have for the diseases and stuff where they're trying to apply the same rules used to create the Jolly Green Giant or the Pillsbury Doughboy in this particular industry. And it's incongruous with the identity of the brand and the identity of sick people and doctors as well in terms of what they're buying when they're buying health care. 
That's really interesting. And, you know, it's so funny that you mentioned these commercials with mascots or animals or other things kind of representing the brand. And and there's a few that actually come to my mind. So I'm really interested that you mentioned that because I have a visual and I'm sure other people do as they're listening to this interview. Does that relate in any way to what you call the healthcare bump or what you refer to as the healthcare bump in your book? No, actually, the healthcare bump is a different idea. You know, doctors are such authorities and considered, obviously, still, even in the internet age, the most trusted source of health and wellness information, thank goodness. And lots of times people will walk into the doctor's office and say, hey, what kind of shoes should I get for my newborn? Or what kind of sunglasses are the best ones to buy for my health? And of course, sometimes the doctor is quite a little flat-footed because they're not experts necessarily in eyewear or in footwear and things like that. Now, obviously, if the question comes to a dermatologist about sunscreen and things like that, they're more informed about answering. But For the most part, doctors are seeking information to be able to make informed recommendations about non-prescription brands, in fact, even non-health and wellness brands. So a lot of times doctors are receiving promotions directly from companies such as decaffeinated coffees or soap like Dove Beauty Bar, for instance, or Neutrogena, and basically touting the healthcare properties so that when a patient does come in and they say, hey, doctor, can you recommend something that I can wash my face with that doesn't interfere with my acne medicine, the doctor can make an informed recommendation about that. I call that the healthcare bump because when a doctor recommends a brand, even a non-medical brand, patients are three times as likely to buy that brand than if they hear about that brand on a television commercial or in, in, in an ad in one of their consumer magazines. And that's what I call the healthcare bump. It's a bump that you get when a doctor will endorse your brand. Now, obviously, a doctor's not going to just hawk a brand just for the sake of doing it. It has to align with their own practicing habits, and they have to feel like the brand is certainly not harming anything they're doing, as well as probably even helping what they're doing in terms of a medical recommendation. That's an interesting statistic for us physicians to keep in mind, that when we recommend a brand, it's possible that the patient is three times more likely to purchase that brand as opposed to if they saw it on a commercial. I think that's really interesting and maybe something that we did or didn't realize and something for us to keep in mind. I want to go to condition branding. You know, That's a term that you coined that really refers to creating disease and disorder identities based on a group of symptoms. I'm particularly interested in this, and I think a lot of my colleagues will be. Can you tell us how this works? But could you also give us some examples? I don't know if you can talk about specific drugs you've worked on where this was used, but I'd love to hear some examples of it, if you can give. Yeah, absolutely. And this is a somewhat controversial topic, I think, because it's been unfairly discussed in the media by people who have never done it before and don't actually know how it gets done. And I'm perfectly capable of talking about it, even from a legal standpoint, because pharmaceutical companies don't own the names of diseases. In fact, they don't even come up with them by themselves. So when you hear about such conditions as overactive bladder or erectile dysfunction, or even ones we already know like multiple sclerosis and things like that, a lot of times the names for these conditions are fostered by an initiative funded by a pharmaceutical company, but involving a number of different constituencies such as patient and physician advocacy groups what we call key opinion leaders or thought leaders who write articles in the medical press that discuss these conditions, they're all invited to participate. Now, my first example of this that I got involved with was for Zantac years ago 
when it was a prescription drug for Glaxo, now GlaxoSmithKline. And they had a prescription drug for what was then known as heartburn. And I was working with them to try and elevate the awareness of a more serious type of chronic acid reflux condition. Now we know it as GERD, gastroesophageal reflux disorder. But at the time, everyone was having trouble distinguishing between simple heartburn that you might get from eating too much spicy food versus a serious pathological problem of the esophageal sphincter not closing properly and allowing acid to backwash up into the esophagus and, as you well know now, causing hospitalizations and precipitating things like esophageal cancer and other types of pathology. And that was seen as both a tremendous service to the people that had the condition, they certainly appreciated it, and doctors really appreciated finally giving a name to something and a set of symptoms to something everyone can recognize. And it also could be reimbursed through insurance claims. But a certain part of the population saw it as disease-mongering, as making up sort of a condition. And my response to those people that say it's made up is, go talk to a doctor or go talk to a patient who's suffering from this. They don't think it's made up. And the statistics, even from the National Institutes of Health, are very clear on the benefits of proper disease branding. Now, I know a lot of times people scratch their head and say, is it always good? And the answer is no, it's not always good. And when it isn't always good, it's because they haven't gone through the proper uh, types of workshops used to generate these disease branding names and ideas, which do involve the manufacturers, key opinion leaders, advocacy societies, patient advocacy groups. All of them have an agenda in renaming a condition or naming an unknown condition that helps remove stigma or that helps provide clarity. So take female sexual dysfunction, for instance. That's a very, very ineffective condition brand name. And the reason is, is because it's so vague. It doesn't help anybody. It just ends up confusing everybody. What does it mean? Does it mean painful sex? Does it mean a lack of achieving an orgasm? Does it mean infrequent orgasms? You know, is there an emotional component to it? Is there a, a physical pathology they're referring to? So disease branding and condition branding fails not because you're creating a condition that doesn't exist just to sell more drugs. It fails because it doesn't inform the dialogue between the doctor and patient. It doesn't raise awareness for a very specific set of symptoms. So when it's done properly, though, I think people will agree overactive bladder sounds a lot better than incontinence and erectile dysfunction sounds a lot better and impotence. We're trying to take the stigma out of these conditions, and condition branding is, when done right, is a tremendous boon to the health and wellness psychology. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Everyday Family Medicine, and I'm Dr. Jennifer Caudle. My guest today is Vince Perry, author of the book, Identity Crisis, Healthcare Branding's Hidden Problems and Proven Strategies to Solve Them. We're talking a little bit about your book and your experience with healthcare branding. And for people who are tuning in just now, can you maybe give us an idea of where people can find your book, Identity Crisis? Yeah, uh, Identity Crisis is available at online book retailers. So you can certainly find them at the top ones, such as Amazon.com or BarnesandNoble.com. But any online retailer will have access to the book, and the book is available in paperback as well as an ebook format. You've been involved in some of the most iconic brands and, and helping to brand them and introduce them to the public in a certain way. So let's shift a little bit to talking about physicians and the role that we play. What role 
should doctors play in terms of marketing? And should brands be marketing to physicians at all? You know, this is sometimes a hot button topic for us physicians. So what are your thoughts? First of all, my father was a doctor. My brother's a doctor. My mother was a receptionist in the hospital. So I grew up in a medical family. And I saw this situation from all sides. I saw it from the practitioner's side of the business. Certainly my father is telling stories at the dinner table at night as well as from the marketing side of it. I'm a communications major, and a lot of times in communicating, the reason that I've been so effective is because I do see both perspectives and tell sort of the inside story, as it were. Now, I've talked to thousands of doctors in the course of my career, and the best thing to do is to try and understand what they're going through. Once they get out of medical school, as you probably know, Dr. Cottle, doctors really learn about new medications from two primary sources. One is in medical journals, if you guys have enough time to get around to reading them because you lead very busy lives. And the other are from the sales forces and the journals and the conventions that pharmaceutical companies hold to try and educate and promote therapies to physicians. If it's done properly, we want physicians to be as informed as possible and as early as possible about new medications and what they're touted for before a patient sees something on TV or reads something online and then goes in and surprises the doctor by asking them about, they heard about a medication on TV and the doctor's caught sort of unaware that the patient is now more informed than the doctor. The whole goal here is for physicians to be informed intermediary. The idea of go ask your doctor if X is right for you is the basic strategy, but that almost presumes that the doctor has been at least talked to for six to nine months in advance about the availability of these therapies and is the learned expert that can discuss and talk to patients. Because the last thing you want is patients can't go and make a direct purchase. They can't walk into a store and buy a prescription therapy just like they can walk in and buy a quart of milk. We need those doctors on the front line to be able to say, this is right for you or this is not right for you. The way that a lot of these commercials come off sounding is it's right for everybody. And I'm probably one of the industry's most conservative critics about, I don't think that drugs actually should be promoted on TV. I just don't think 30 seconds is enough to introduce somebody to a subject that is so complex that it really takes someone with four to eight years of postdoctorate education to explain it to a patient. So I think the role that doctors play is absolutely key. They're the front lines in terms of understanding whether or not these new technologies and new drug innovations are appropriate for patients, and therefore they have to be extremely well-informed and detailed about them. That's really interesting. So just so that I'm clear, you don't think drugs should be advertised on TV? Is that Did I hear you correctly? Well, I, I don't think certain complex drugs should be advertised on TV. I mean, I, sure. was, I was recently watching a baseball game and saw the commercial for Opdivo, for instance, which is a chemotherapy. It's a monoclonal antibody. Right. And 20 years ago, I can't imagine that kind of technology being explained in 30 seconds on a TV commercial. I right. Just, and I, I think the drug is very good. You know, I mean, I have high opinion of it. it it's got good efficacy rates and Unfortunately, it has the side effects of a monoclonal antibody and the risks associated with it. But when you watch the commercial, you don't come away with all those risks. All you come away with is a sense of really high-flying optimism that, oh, my God, my life is going to be so much better if I have this type of cancer. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. And so I just don't think it's an appropriate medium for such complex therapies now. 
Right. No, no. I mean, I, I ask actually, you know, because I think that there's a lot of physicians or healthcare providers who probably feel the same way that you do. And what you described as, you know, sometimes a patient coming in, seeing something on the news or on television and being blindsided as a physician because we haven't heard about it yet. You're right. It's kind of an interesting conundrum. So I, I do appreciate you addressing that. We only have time for maybe one or two more questions. I, I definitely wanted to ask you along those lines about some of the common mistakes that you think healthcare brands are making. You know, you mentioned the advertising on TV and some situations. Are there other healthcare branding mistakes that you're seeing commonly? Well, other than selling drugs like consumer products, that's the main mistake. I just don't think that manufacturers do the right kind of research. I think they don't ask the right kinds of questions. This is one of the subjects I get to in one of the chapters in my book. There's a lot of research done, and you might have even been interviewed yourself, Dr. Caudill, about this, but whenever a new brand comes out, there's a tremendous amount of research that, you know, again, we talk to hundreds, if not thousands of doctors about their current prescribing habits and where this drug fits in. But the conversations are mostly about the drug instead of about the doctor or instead of about the patient. The questions more should be around the lines of why did you become a doctor? Why did you become a specific kind of specialty? What are the pain points you have during your day? What are the things you enjoy most? And then understanding how the brand you're selling will fit into that doctor's life or fit into that patient's life. All the questions are what I call who, what, where, when, and how questions. You know, who are you going to use this drug in? When are you going to use it? How often are you going to use it? Rather than get at the idea of why, why should I be using this drug? Why should I change the way I prescribe as a doctor to advocate for this particular drug? That can only come from asking the right kind of questions about really delving into what doctors go through on a regular basis. That's the kind of research that I certainly advocate and that I conduct with my agency. But all too often, the majority of the time, the questions that doctors get asked are, what do you think about us? How much do you like us? It's a very one-way one-way monologue. You've been such a wonderful guest today. We have one more question for you. Can you discuss a branding case or a drug or a product that you've been involved in branding where you solved a particular problem or you got around a particular issue that might be of interest to us healthcare practitioners? One of my favorite cases to work on was a company, Johnson & Johnson, their hospital supply industry brand, Epicon, the leading brand of sutures in the marketplace for surgeons. And they came to me with a problem, which was that they make such great sutures, but let's face it, it's thread. When it's sitting there in front of you, you can't necessarily tell one string of thread from another. And so a lot of cheaper competition was coming in and basically supplying sutures to hospitals. And they were saying, well, how can we reinforce the Ethicon name and the Johnson & Johnson name? And so the kind of research we did was we really went and talked to all sorts of surgeons, cardiovascular surgeons, brain surgeons, orthopedic surgeons, OBGYN surgeons. And we're trying to find that one thing that they all have in common about sutures. And one of the things we found in common had nothing to do necessarily with the structural integrity of the sutures, which are very, very good. And that is, all these doctors said that they learned to use the sutures in medical school, that Ethicon sutures were the brand that they first trained on. So we started to focus on the idea that you can draw a suture-like straight line between the time someone learned to first tie a square knot to the 117th cardiac valve procedure that they did or from the first day learning how to train on Ethicon sutures all the way to their first day as the chief of the department, let's say, of their surgery department. 
And this idea, we developed a campaign called The Essential Thread of Life, where we talked about how J&J and Ethicon have been there since they learned hands-on experience, and that was that hands-on experience you can't replicate in any other suture. And it certainly helped doctors to take a better look at Ethicon sutures and remind themselves that there is a difference in quality. There is a difference. It isn't just always about price. It's the same quality that they have with their own individual identities and their own individual brands. And when you select that type of suture, you're selecting the industry that you've trained in all your life and that you specialize in. That's one of my favorite assignments that I've ever worked on. Well, that's one that actually resonates with me. As a family doctor, I learned on Ethicon sutures myself, and I I think probably a lot of people did. But what's really interesting is hearing how that quality, and I think many doctors agree too, the drugs they trained on, that they trained you know, in residency, they prescribed. I think for many of us, it's our tendency to still prescribe them. So it's interesting how from a branding standpoint, you capitalized on that, you you took a look at that and used that in, in the marketing campaign. I know from personal experience, Vince, and we have to close now, but, but there are many more stories just like that in your book. Your book is excellent, Identity Crisis, Healthcare Branding's Hidden Problems and Proven Strategies to Solve Them. And I know that your book is available on Amazon.com and many others. I've really been enjoying reading about many other drugs that you've worked on and how you've come up with the branding strategy. So I do want to thank you, Vince Perry, so much for joining me today to talk about your experience with healthcare branding. Well, thanks for having me, Dr. Caudill. It's been a great pleasure speaking to you. I'm Dr. Jennifer Caudill. To access this episode and others from our series of Everyday Family Medicine, please visit us at reachmd.com and become part of the knowledge. Thanks so much for listening.